0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network. We're here today with a very special conversation on conspiracy theories in the Middle Ages. I'm here. I'm joined by uh, Sean Field, Mary Rubin, and Michael Bailey. Hello, everyone. How are we doing? We're good. Happy good. to be here. No, it's fine. Yay. Nice to see you. Wonderful. All right. Can you? Um, I would love it if you would introduce yourselves, tell your listeners who you are and where you are and, and the like. How about we start with you, Mary? Sure. Um, I'm Mary Rubin.
1: I am speaking with you from my little study at home in Cambridge, UK, where it's just a sort of blustery spring day. And I normally, in normal times, I would be in London teaching at uh, the School of History of Queen Mary, University of London. And I'm interested in medieval religion, how people lived it, how people performed it, and what it caused people to do. So that will all feed very well into the study of conspiracies.
0: Oh, that, and indeed. Mike Bailey. Hello. Hi, uh,
2: I'm Mike Bailey. I am coming to you from the middle of Iowa, um, also in my in my home, in a little corner of my home. Um, I teach at Iowa State University, and uh, I cover, um, once again, as with, as with Miri, I do religious history and cultural history. Uh, I tend to lean toward the, the bad or the proscribed forms of religion. So uh, I work on heresy and superstition and uh, magic and witchcraft, and it is mainly the witchcraft angle that I'll be here talking about
3: today.
0: Wonderful. And Sean Fields.
3: Hi, I'm Sean Field. I'm in my office here at the University of Vermont in Burlington, Vermont. And uh, I'm also a professor of medieval history. And I'm interested particularly in religious history, like my colleagues here, and particularly in France. And one of the things that I focus on is the relationship between religion and power both on the side of things that might involve sanctity and the side of things that might involve heresy and inquisition. So uh, one of the topics that that um, interests me is the trial of the Templars in the early 14th century. And that's really the the hat that I have on today for this conversation.
0: Excellent. Actually, and since you have the floor, Sean, please continue. Tell us what you tell us. uh, Who are these Templars?
3: Sure. Well, if you're not familiar at all with the Templars, they're um, a religious order, but a particular kind of religious order, one of the military orders, meaning that Templars are churchmen like any other monks. They're vowed to poverty, chastity, and obedience, but in an order formed in the wake of the First Crusade, so formed in the early 12th century, they are a military order dedicated to, to fighting, to defending the Holy Land against infidels, to aggressive military action to try to defend or to conquer territories in the name of, of Christianity. So it's a very particular invention of the Christian world, of the 12th century that the military order and the Templars have um, roughly a two century history before quite, quite suddenly and unexpectedly in 1307, the King of France uh, orders all the Templars in France to be arrested and they are charged with a, a string of offenses, including the idea, the basic idea is that when Templars join the order, they have to renounce Christ, spit on the cross, worship idols, engage in indecent kisses, and agree to be available for homosexual activities uh, when so asked. So this is a, a range of charges cooked up by the King of France, and this is perhaps the, the moment to say that almost all historians agree that there are no truth to those charges, that you have to understand this as a political process. You have to understand the motivation as something that's coming from the French royal court. And across a a five-year process in the end, the order of the temple was suppressed, not actually found guilty, but simply suppressed uh, by the papacy by Pope Clement V in 1312. And so as as we talk about the, the trial of the Templars as a kind of conspiracy theory, there's the actual moment itself. It's about a five-year period to try to figure out what was really happening and, and what's behind these accusations and, and where the conspiracy lies. And then there's a much later kind of history that we may want to get to uh, as we proceed, which is a more modern sort of reinvention of, of the Templars and fitting them into all kinds of grand conspiracy theories that float around the world to this day.
0: Uh, that's uh, I'm looking forward to discussing Indecent Kisses um. All right, and uh, Mike, what are you here to talk about today?
2: So I'm here to talk about witches and witchcraft, <clears throat> and I guess um, along the lines uh, that Sean proceeded to begin with. You know, if you don't know anything about particularly medieval witchcraft, the first thing to explain is that um, it it can mean several things because the word itself is is um, a little bit fungible. Um, We have the word witchcraft in English, of course. The main word employed in the Middle Ages in Latin, in our Latin records, was maleficium, which literally just means uh, a a bad or an evil action. And what it really meant was harmful magic. So at one level, you can call a witch anyone who performs, anyone who you think, who you suspect, is performing any type of magic that you feel to be harmful, causing diseases or hailstorms that are destroying the crops or making the animals sick in the fields, things like that. What then happens, and, and probably the more specific uh, development that we're going to be focusing on here is in the late Middle Ages, really in the early 15th century, so that's the early 1400s, there is this uh, conspiratorial development. The idea emerges among authorities uh, who are who are um, attacking witches or prosecuting witches, that they are not functioning just as people going around having special abilities and performing occasionally bad magic, that they are uh, in these vast conspiracies and in league with the devil, that they are not unlike the Templars, meeting at these uh, great convocations where they do all sorts of sort of extraneous, horrible things, uh, sexual things and, and uh, cannibalism, eating small children um, and and worshiping and submitting themselves to demons and the devils. Um, And once again, we should say that there is no evidence that anything like this ever took place. This was all a construction um, in in the minds of of the people who wanted to construct it. So that is really the conception um, of of witchcraft as as its grand conspiratorial action that then goes forward into the early modern period. So the, the 16th, and the 17th centuries, when the major witch hunts occurred in Western Europe, the really big ones. And those themselves were, were sporadic, and they were they were by no means universal all the time, and they occurred for all sorts of different reasons in different places. But underlying all of them was this idea, this this just basic fundamental idea that, in authorities' minds, if you found one witch, there should be others because they were members of a group. So if you find one, you should start hunting for other ones.
0: All right. So I'm seeing here kind of a link that, that conspiracy theories are the idea that some people are getting supernatural help or doing supernatural things to get help for themselves but to harm others. Does that fit what you're here to talk about, Mary? Slightly.
1: Um, I'm here to talk about, to go even earlier in time, into the 12th century, and to discuss um, the beginning or at least the first time we hear of an accusation that Jews are obliged every year to identify a Christian child and to kill that child in recreation, in mocking, restaging, as it were, of the crucifixion. And that this is a task that is allocated to a different Jewish community every year. And then that community has to sort out how do you find the child, what do you do, and so on. So this is part of the story that um, was developed in exactly mid-century, mid-12th century uh, England in the town of Norwich, which at the time was a sort of important provincial town. And um, it was claimed that in 1144, a boy who was found in a wood outside the city, not far from the cathedral, showed all the signs of having killed being killed by Jews. And so his family, we are told, promoted this story. And actually the authorities, like the bishop and then the sheriff, people in charge, didn't really pursue it. There was nothing to pursue. It didn't sound credible. But six years later, a monk who had just joined the local cathedral uh, priory, the, the community of monks that lived in the Cathedral of Norwich, Uh, Arrived in town and maybe heard rumors about this story that had happened six years ago and no one did anything about it. And he decided this would be his life's work. And he goes literally like a cold case detective. He goes to the site, he interviews people, even finds witnesses that had never been taken into account before. And he manages, with all of that, to concoct a story, a very compelling story, about the Jews of Norwich having enticed an innocent boy of 12, William, to their homes, killed him in ver- various cruel ways and ultimately disposed of his body. But thanks to divine intervention, and I suppose we get that's where we get the supernatural that you mentioned, signs are sent to good Christians and they discover the body, and so it unfolds. And yet authority, that is power, which Sean talked about, power power that regulated Norwich, both church and state, did not pursue it properly with the proper good virtuous intent. And so it waited for six years for our author to do the right thing, to create the narrative, to sell the narrative, and all with the wish of creating a proper cult for this little boy in the very cathedral that was now his home. And for the next 20-some years, he continues adding to his work stories of, indeed, miracles that occurred at that tomb, miracles that occurred thanks to the the, the the merits of this little boy, which, of course, then just go to prove that indeed the accusation that he had developed was correct. But for us, I suppose the interest here is that that is the first telling, but it's not the last.
0: So all of these ideas are are compelling right the they get they get traction uh, in a particular point in history and 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 continue to have like continue to have this long afterlife and I'm interested in in what it is about them that makes them so compelling and I've got several ideas I really would like to hear from you about them um I mean one one thing we've discussed is that they they need to nest into an existing cultural touchstone or a narrative that makes sense. Um, do, does that? How do you feel about this? I think that's
1: absolutely right, and uh, it, it, no conspiracy comes is, is full of surprises. It's not science fiction. It's actually about very artfully pulling together what are either facts or notions that exist within the culture that have a certain uh, um, authority to them, credibility to them, and then combining them in a a new way. So in the case of the boy is the context of the crucifixion, uh, the fact that Jews were understood as knowingly having led to uh, to Christ's death. Um, various associations with uh, cruelty therefore arise from that. But the interesting thing is that in that first iteration in Norwich, not much happened, not much happened, and actually not much happened for a while, although the story sort of traveled as an interesting story uh, through manuscripts and forms of communication within religious orders. It's only 111 years later that when it was retold in a quite different context, that it worked. But what's really interesting about uh, this artful uh, author who created this early text, this, well, first of all, he used hagiography, writing a life of a saint. He used a genre that was really familiar at the time. So he wasn't presenting some boy, some odd boy. The boy had all the hallmarks, according to him, of indeed a martyr worthy of worship. Worthy, worthy of cult, but also just all sorts of details of humdrum day-to-day, the way the boy's mum was represented, the way the city is represented, was all there to reassure people that the story may be a new one, but there's so much about it that is familiar, that including citations from the Bible, that it gives it that sort of truth value. And that tends to be the case with most conspiracy theories. One
3: of the things that links all three of these examples together is surely that in medieval Europe, which is a deeply Christian society in terms of its power structures, a true conspiracy, a vast conspiracy, a conspiracy that threatens all of society is an anti-Christian conspiracy, a conspiracy on behalf of the powers of, of darkness or the infidel or the enemies of Christ so that some of the same accusations against Jews are similar to those that are made against heretics, perceived heretics, that are made against the Templars and eventually made against witches. What would a group that is conspiring to attack Christian society engage in? Well, they would engage in uh, demonic or satanic rituals. They would engage in the, the kind of behavior that directly attacks good Christians. So when accusations were being concocted against the Templars, what the men around the King of France are drawing on are long existing stereotypes that have been applied to some degree to Jews and certainly to heretics of meeting in secret and engaging in what is perceived as deviant sexual acts and in worshiping idols or or something something that's inappropriate in, in Christian society. That's that's what links them to a something larger, not just acts that are that are harmful, but a conspiracy an organized attempt to to harm Christians. And to a large degree, I think Mike can pick up from there. But those are the same stereotypes and accusations that lie behind early witch trials.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in terms of really uh, picking up on both what what Sean is saying and what Miri said, um, the the reality behind. Witchcraft, or the or the the conspiratorial fever dream of what witchcraft can be thought of, is is the fact that there are in fact people all over medieval Europe who, who are believed to have and claim to have magical powers. You know, there there are these um, um, men and women, although they tend to skew uh, more women than men, um, who are healers and diviners. They can they can predict the future. They can. Uh, communicate with the dead, Um, you know, just just as today we might go to a a seance or something like that. Um, They can perform love magic. If you're particularly attracted to one of your neighbors and they're not returning your feelings, you can go seek the services of these people. And these people enjoyed, uh, they often enjoyed a fraught relationship with their neighbors. I mean, they, they performed useful services, what were thought to be, what were believed to be useful services, but there was also an, an aura of danger there always, even if they weren't considered to be outright evil. And then you have the authorities coming in um, and really taking, taking from their own angle, known elements, the elements Sean is talking about, uh, these deep rooted um, ideas of, of what an anti-Christian conspiracy means and what sort of actions it entails. And just kind of loading that onto these people just kind of saying, well, they must be doing this too. They must be, They must be, first of all, meeting in groups, uh, and at those group meetings, which are in witches' cases are called uh, witches' sabbaths, they must be doing all of these all of these horrible things. And we see very clearly elements elements from anti heretical rhetoric and elements from anti Jewish rhetoric uh, being poured into the emerging stereotype of
3: witchcraft.
0: So, um, what what does this offer to the average person who who might believe this?
3: Well,
2: I'll I'll start with witchcraft because it it may be it may be the odd case out um, because i i would say for the average person the stereotype of witchcraft doesn't honestly offer all that much and one of the main reasons we know this or, or think we can assert that is that we see in in the 15th century starting in the middle ages and really, really all throughout the period of the major european witch hunts so for the next couple hundred years the 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 great stereotype, the great conspiratorial stereotype, the sort of cosmic level evil that witches represent, isn't what ordinary people ever seem to be concerned about. They are concerned that my child has a fever, my cow is no longer giving milk, my field is not productive, my neighbor's field seems to be, I would like that to be the other way around if at all possible. Um, So what you really see with witchcraft is uh, authorities exerting their power. We've all talked, already started to talk a lot about power here authorities exerting their power to impose that idea, which I think it's fair to say the ordinary person or the or the quote-unquote average person isn't averse to precisely because it does, that stereotype as outlandish as it can get, still does plug into these, these other patterns, these other frameworks that they are familiar with, that they've sort of heard about all their lives. So yeah, there, there are people who go off and do this sort of thing. So I can I can somewhat believe that um, people who perform magic would also do that, but um, it doesn't really particularly do much. I would say, for uh, average people, it does a great deal for figures in authority. Um, they can they can use it as a tool in in several ways on their own regard, and that's probably something we'll get into as we as we delve more into the power power aspect of things.
1: Right. I was, I was I was just wondering once it's normalized, once it's available, this like this new diabolical witchcraft that you've documented so well from the 15th century on. Once people are more used to hearing about it, hearing stories about it, and it circulates very widely because of the spread of sort of news of trials and, and and woodcuts and whatnot. So don't you think that it helps people at least explain the presence of evil and malfortune? And in that sense, there's a sort of, I mean, Not automatically, somebody has to suggest, and often the agent of suggestion is some sort of official, or maybe a parish priest, or maybe just a neighbor. But that it does explain the existence of malfortune and and evil in the world.
2: Yes, I would say you you are absolutely right on that, and it sort of adds adds this grander level to it. Right, Um, you know, my own personal misfortune is not simply a misfortune that has happened to me. Um, it's not simply you know my bad luck or or, or even that that I've antagonized uh, a single person um, who has in my town in my village who has the power to do these sorts of things to me. it adds this cosmic level. I'm caught up in this in this grand combat, really combat against the devil combat for christian society. Um, we do definitely see that um some of the some of the greatest witch hunts when a witch hunt really catches fire, which is a awful metaphor there, but I'll go with it. Um, it certainly involves this—a this, uh, community buying in, a whole community buying into these concepts. Um, I think immediately of uh, it takes us over to the North American sphere, but the famous uh, case of Salem. Where you had a whole community that, that for various reasons, uh, was very, very ready to become energized by this larger idea that um, it was not simply individuals suffering misfortune, but we as a Christian community are under assault. Uh, That's what's going on, um, and that's what we need to combat here. So, yeah, I agree completely.
1: But the Salem case is really interesting, just to to follow that, is because of the involvement of of children or girls in in the case of Salem. So, Mm -hmm. um, we all know what it's like. And I mean, in the United States, um, respectfully, but uh, a whole conspiracy has been constructed around the issue of anxiety about children, pedophilia, and so on. So, these cases of the ritual murder. They're always about children, mostly usually boys, but some girls as well, and and we know what sort of panic, and guilt, and and anxiety set in when a child disappears, even before you found a body. Just a child disappearing, say like in the case of Lincoln, twelve fifty five, the accusations against you started before the body a body was found. So um, so there are particular moments of vulnerability and willingness to buy into the story when alternative explanations perhaps are too awful or too close to home.
2: Yeah, yeah I think um, it always seems to be that conspiracy conspiracy theories manifest when there is when there is some type of other pathology in the system um, uh, when there is something you know, some reason for people to gravitate toward them. And in other situations, this, this is one of the hardest things to explain in the history of witchcraft. In other situations, people simply don't. You know, the spark is is ignited, uh, an accusation is made, but it simply doesn't catch on. And ultimately, it, it you know, the, the wave of concern just kind of dies out. And nothing like a full conspiracy is is generated
3: in that case. Talking about the original trial of the Templars, it's a little little different... Um, In large part because it's not entirely clear whether most people in France, whether most people across Europe actually believed in the guilt of the Templars. It's just harder to say. Obviously, we don't have, you know, public relations polls and CNN uh, flash polls and that sort of thing. Um, It's not quite the same kind of long lasting conspiracy theory that pops up over and over again. People have suggested that perhaps it was satisfying to think that if the Templars were accused of really being an anti-Christian force, they weren't what they seemed. They're supposed to be the force defending Christians, defending the Holy Land. And in fact, the long you know, two century history of the Crusades had ended in complete military failure. The Crusades had not succeeded in retaking the Holy Land. If anything, Islamic power was on the rise by the early 14th century that perhaps it was satisfying to think, well, now we have an explanation for that. The Templars were really sort of secret agents working against us. And that, you know, that sounds logical when you say it, but there's actually not much evidence that anyone was really thinking that in the early 14th century. In fact, we have uh, a lot of silence in terms of what people really thought at the time. We have little Little hints that that not everyone believed in the guilt of the Templars. You know, Dante famously uh, did not. It's it's not really clear that Pope Clement V ever really believed it. And outside of the Kingdom of France, where the King of France couldn't really control things, uh, it's fairly clear that there was a great deal of skepticism. And it makes sense because the order of the Temple um, was widespread, had plenty of um, members from the nobility. To say that every Templar in Europe was a member of a secret anti-Christian conspiracy is to say that a lot of people's brothers and uncles and cousins uh, were members of this conspiracy. And there's every reason why there should have been a fair amount of skepticism uh, at the time. So in the case of the Templars, asking the question of why people might want to believe in a vast conspiracy involving the Templars uh, really doesn't have as much purchase until you get into the more modern phase of, of why everyone's so eager to involve the Templars into their conspiracy theories.
0: And I mean, we're jumping ahead a little bit of the story, but why why does that work? What's the traction there then?
3: Right. Uh, well, if we want to jump ahead uh, first and maybe circle back, you know, these uh, all three of these uh, medieval conspiracy theories have different kinds of afterlives. And as you get into the late 18th century, the early 19th century, uh, it's the period in which the the witch trials are fading away. In a certain sense, the uh, blood libel, as Mary can can tell us in more detail, has a a really vicious 19th century comeback. Um, But the late 18th century, early 19th century is where, for several different reasons, Europeans become newly obsessed with the Templars. And coming out of perhaps first a kind of offshoot of a Freemasonry with an kind of ever more elaborate sort of internal um, building up of supposed secret grades within Freemasonry, the attempts to, to insist that, that Masonic lodges go back to the Middle Ages, which they, they really didn't, um, links up to some kind of underground secret existence of the Templars. And the Templars were perfect for this precisely because they didn't exist anymore. They weren't around to exist anymore. If you tried to claim that they, uh, you know, had secret links to other military orders, like say the hospitalers, they they sort of did have a continued existence into the 18th and 19th century. The Templars are the perfect, the perfect place to define uh, a supposed order that could link up to the modern world precisely because it ceased to exist in the early 14th century under mysterious and, and difficult to understand circumstances. But then going into the early 19th century, partly coming out of that same context and partly just emerging out of more of a 19th century romantic nostalgia for the Middle Ages, you have the emergence of of all kinds of claims of of neo-Templars, of of groups, some, some clear charlatans, others maybe more sincere but somewhat deluded people who are claiming to be the legitimate heirs of the Templars. Some of them realize they're recreating something from scratch because they want to. But others claim that they are the the heirs of a secret underground tradition that goes all the way back to the Middle Ages. And once this is out there, then the Templars become this key element in esoteric thinkers, occult thinkers, who want to construct some kind of narrative of an alternative source of secret knowledge that often goes back to pre-Christian ideas that will usually evolve some kind of chain from Gnostics to Manichees to Cathars to Templars to some kind of early modern manifestation that can be presented either in a heroic way. These are free thinkers. These are the, the secret tradition that kept alive sources of knowledge that powerful church and state wanted to suppress but never quite managed to. Or they can be presented as evil plotters. These are the evil... Satanic uh, heretics and sources of black magic that have always plagued society and and need to be stamped out, and and in that in that manifestation in the nineteenth century can can work in you know anti-Semitic charges and the elders of Zion and then you know all kinds of evil forces behind the scene. So the Templars become a linchpin to an endlessly malleable attempt to define secret change of knowledge, precisely because. They don't exist anymore. They can be made to stand for anything. They can be pushed in one direction or another and fit into almost any scenario. Uh, and they, you know, you can't even have a good conspiracy theory by the nineteenth century unless you get the, the Templars in there, in there somewhere. If you didn't have the Templars in your conspiracy theory, you clearly weren't really trying.
1: Sure. Fair, Fair enough. But this question about who believes, that's just been elaborated, but also which started with Mike's comment, it's so interesting in the case of of ritual murder or, or child murder, and then it gets more elaborate, and the claim is that the Jews actually require the blood that is had out of the child's body and that they harvest this blood and they use it from a whole range of uses be they liturgical to to, to, to make for the uh, to, to make the passover matzah to um, to for cosmetic reasons to get rid of their terrible pallor so um, but in fact there are very very few cases across europe there are literally just a few tens over almost a thousand years where people were really accused, and it went through the system, and they were found guilty. Now that is one bar of sort of by which we may assess the uh, the toxicity of it. But just imagine having this story being told about you, even if you're not dragged into court for it, because you know going to court you have to have someone really wanting it to happen and that's usually a bishop or a leader or some. and in those cases where they became, these accusations became famous court cases like in Trent in 1475 we know exactly who the actors are and some of your guys who are also Mike uh, so interested in persecuting uh, or prosecuting and persecuting witches were also uh, very interested and involved in uh, the case of Trent. So so. We have to imagine, therefore, how does conspiracy harm people? Why is it harmful if it doesn't always take the form of a sort of a nasty trial and its end, like for so many of your witches and for your Templars and for, in a few cases, also for Jews? It's the noxious literature. It's the representations. It's the images. That so sadly, late in my life, I see them now everywhere when I was a child. I was, you know, growing up in a world that, as it were, you're never going to see these images again. So, so I think the conspiracy isn't is is about the creation of that sort of set of alternative sensibilities, accusations that clearly satisfy in a whole series of ways those who use them and produce them, but are also of consequence to those who bear them, as it were, who are the Suggested, accused, or associated with it, even if it doesn't ultimately, literally claim their lives, it becomes part of a sort of environment of what is believable about a certain group, which in itself creates, obviously, suffering and exclusion and un- great unpleasantness.
2: Yeah, I, I see the exact same dynamics at work in witchcraft accusations and and conspiracy ideas that circulate around around witches um, the numbers are much higher. that is the numbers of the real dead yeah. are much higher. there were probably uh, around 50,000 people executed for witchcraft across Europe and that is just in you know, legal formal trials. but we certainly also know that around that there's this there's this penumbra of uh, in some cases people who were were lynched, let us say were subject yeah. to popular justice, yeah. Uh, because of suspicions of witchcraft that could lead up to up to including um, being killed, and then as you say, as, as Miri says, just uh, this this notion that these accusations are a potentiality out there um, that really could, in the case of witchcraft, could come to focus on almost anyone because witchcraft the the one difference the one one quite significant difference probably between witchcraft as a conspiracy. Um, and, and Jewish ritual murder as a conspiracy theory is that anyone, in theory, could become a witch. There are certain demographics. you know, They tend to be more women than men. Uh, they tend to be poorer rather than from upper levels of society and so forth, but they're not a pre-existing group. Prior to the accusation of witchcraft, you're not walking through the late medieval world and saying, those are the witches. They live over there in their community, and these are the non-witches. It, it doesn't work that way. So, Witchcraft becomes this really uh, tremendously useful for authorities of, of all ilks, tremendously useful concept that can just hang over the society, and to some extent, to some extent discipline everybody by, by teaching them, you know, by teach by presenting the opposite. Therefore, teaching them this is what you should be as a good Christian. This is what you should be the opposite of what these supposed witches are. Another way that you could think
3: of this as. Uh, in some ways corrosive of people's um, ability or desire to analyze the world around them rationally, is if you think of a late medieval world where belief in witches' Sabbaths is apparently fairly widespread, or late medieval or early modern world, and where belief that Jews conspire against Christians is fairly widely spread, then not only does that contribute to people walking around and feeling as though there is a vast, perhaps intertwined conspiracy out there against Christians, but also if, quote unquote, everybody knows about this, and yet the authorities who are supposed to be keeping good Christians safe do nothing about it. Periodically, they they arrest a Jew and put him on trial. Periodically, there's an outbreak of, of witch hunting, but by and large, day in, day out, um, nothing is being done to to quell these dastardly conspiracies against good people. That also leads to a sense that uh, the supposedly good or Christian authorities are also somehow either in on it or at least not doing their job, so that everything from top down, the structures of society are riddled with these these secret attacks, and it implies a complete uh, necessity to w- from within these conspiratorial thinking patterns to reject everything that uh, nothing is what it seems, and it's not only the specific groups that you're blaming, but society from the top down that is not what it seems and and must be in some way overturned. And, you know that's that's the the hallmark of a of a true a truly conspiratorial way of, of
1: seeing the world around you. Um, and so maybe maybe um, it's important to emphasize the role of those I like to think of, those who ought to know better and do know better. That is to say, just like with this monk in mid-12th century Norwich or the people around the King of France or your Dominicans, Mike, and the magistrates who participated in all these uh, uh, trials, um, it happens because people in positions of privilege and authority make it. Happen And want it to happen. And moreover, and and you asked about pushback, uh, Jana, originally, and there is pushback. There is pushback at the time. But of course, the pushback is but a sign of how important the struggle is, because there are people out there who are equally enthralled. To the devil or to whoever is operating, which is mostly the devil. So there is as if there have to be like ongoing commentators who explain why the objections and why the critique is wrong. I mean, the sort of uh, Tucker Carlsons that continue explaining that whatever is being said, actually it, it is but proof that the original, what we call the conspiracy narrative uh is is correct and it was really striking that even the author of that original text from mid 12th century norwich which i had the which 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 i translated so i feel quite sort of close to it and have written about um there he even the person who writes it he almost preempts criticism of this rather outlandish and novel story that he's trying to put out there by telling us that, yes, people in the monastery were against it, but he fought through. He was committed, and ultimately they were punished with various gruesome deaths and whatnot. And so there's a continued need to support this conspiratorial interpretation of the world. So there's work not only in creating it, but in sustaining it against the constant flow of clearly contradictory information, or indeed others who polemically engage and try to rebut. So there is this work by people who have skills, communication skills, access to text, the creation of visuals, uh, and whatever the media of the day are. So it's a sort of process. It can lose, it can come to an end point, either because there's a trial or because something more interesting happens, or very often, uh, in the case of the Jews, The king intervenes and says, enough of this. We don't want this sort of violence around the place. And we have cases like that. And even on occasion, the Pope intervening and saying, look, we don't love Jews, but there's no reason to think they have to do this sort of evil that's imputed to them. So sometimes then it comes to an end, an abrupt end. But there is always work in constantly shoring up the conspiracy theory and continuing to elaborate it while it is alive. I think an
3: essential element of that is the idea of confession. So not, uh, this, this would not be the case in the, in the original uh, uh, iteration of, of the blood libel back in the 12th century, but in later cases, certainly in the trial of the Templars, all the Templars in France are arrested. They are put under enormous pressure, sometimes tortured, uh, and they are forced to confess. And when they confess, those confessions are taken down in very proper legal form, and the leaders of the order are forced to confess in public, out loud, orally in in Paris. But really, in some ways, the more important part is the the written confessions that are enshrined in something that looks legally proper. And so once those confessions exist, you know, on on parchment, uh, they are available down through the centuries to be consulted, and they, they constitute proof, and probably even more powerfully, and Miri could speak to this better than I could, but in the case of later blood libel trials and something like Trent in 1475 you know enormous effort goes into documenting confessions in great great detail and making sure that that the Jews confessed not just sort of generally but to what they're supposed to confess to and that then those those confessions can be you know printed and circulated and then you know a century later and i assume this is probably similar with with witch trials like a century later you go back and consult those earlier printed documented confessions and they become uh, difficult to refute because there they are in in proper legal form uh, and they constitute a kind of uh, supposed proof that uh, becomes a circular kind of logic that leads to, to more confessions because they tell the next wave of, of authorities what these people are supposed to confess to and they confess to something similar and it begins to look as though down through the ages Jews or witches are all confessing to something very similar which confirms that it was all a big Conspiracy to start. with.
2: This is absolutely the heart of. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, the the heart of of the process that drives uh, witch trials and witch hunts. Uh, confession is the queen of proofs. It is the queen of all evidence. These are these are secret actions. These are covert actions. Um, certainly, in the case of of witchcraft, the supposed results of witchcraft. They're also the results are all things that everybody knows could also occur normally. It's not that people are going around in late medieval Europe thinking every time someone gets sick, it's necessarily a nefarious action on the part of a witch and league with the devil. People just get sick. So these confessions are very, very important. And as Sean says, they have to, once a pattern gets established, they have to reinforce the pattern. Um, and as Miri talked about, uh, the development of strategies, sort of genre-specific strategies, to to even turn failures to demonstrate the existence of a conspiracy into evidence for that a standard a standard development within witch trials is it becomes accepted by authorities that if someone will not confess even under torture, which was employed here quite often, if someone will not confess even under torture that is simply evidence that the devil is intervening on the part of his servant to, to block the pain and prevent the confession. Um, and we have all sorts of wonderful stories of you know, witches won't confess and they won't confess until suddenly they're being questioned on a, on a Sunday morning and a mass is being said. Uh, and they can hear the bells ringing out for mass or something like that. And it breaks the power of the devil. and The confession pours forth, forth from them. that Yes, I've done, I've done all of these things. I'm exactly who you thought I was all along.
0: Okay. So I'm seeing that um, we it needs to tie into a reasonable narrative. We need a person, maybe a couple people, bad actors who are deeply invested in developing this. Uh, then we see a pattern, right? And then this pattern in itself becomes, uh, reaffirms the existence of this. We see pushback may or may not work. What's But it seems that the intervention of traditional power sources is really important either in making this happen ever or quashing it or legitimizing it. So conspiracy theories can be, and and hysteria in general, can be marshaled by traditional authorities?
1: I think we should be careful there. What we can say is that the operations of the systems at the state Control and control, state, church, or state, that can be really meaningful. Um there were interventions in those trials in Franconia in the seventeenth century, weren't there? There were petitions, and the Emperor intervenes and he stops a series of trials that, as it were, were just getting out of hand or or you can get bishops that or or the Pope who intervenes, but that will not necessarily stop the circulation. Of what has been already put into the sort of social bloodstream and that is the stories that we talked about which are which are harder to quantify it will save lives and that's obviously a very good thing but there is this residue and particularly when we add from the age of print to the text the protocols like those of Trent, for example that john mentioned if we add to that the way new technologies are allowing Pamphlets, newsletters. I mean, witch trials become news, big news. It's a whole genre of writing them up quickly and circulating and so on, as are other nefarious murders, all sorts of scandalous news. It's the beginning of the of the um, well of what what we call tabloids in this country. Really, uh, going for fascination, going for cheap thrills. So. So we can, yes, they can definitely intervene and they can stop what they control, which is, which is trials and, and processes, but uh, they can't control that whole sort of poisonous uh, sense of a world controlled by hidden forces, maybe even my neighbor, who can I trust? And that, that is really extremely harmful of the social fabric, both for those who tell it and believe it and those who are considered to be the accused.
2: Yeah, in the case of witch trials, authorities are very, very awake to the potentiality of these things to spin out of control. The notion of witchcraft, uh, the ability to, as we talked about, just sort of have it hanging out there, you know, sort of you know, just intrinsically disciplining people can be useful. But then if the conspiracy reaches a certain point in a certain location, it can spin entirely out of control and authorities... Authorities tend to want control over anything else, uh, so they will often step in. and, and As Miri says so well, you know they will they will control the things they can. They will stop the official trials. They will they will refuse to start accepting any more accusations. But the deeper ideas uh, are much more entrenched. In the case of witchcraft, you can oppose. Authorities can oppose any number of individual outbreaks but it does nothing to the underlying idea until really we get to the enlightened, 17th and 18th century Europe, when the European intellectual class as a whole, one might say, simply decides that demons are no longer active in the world. We're no longer going to live in this world in which demons and divine power is perceived as a sort of active presence. And it's that absolutely fundamental conceptual change that is really necessary to start to to start to root out that that more deeply entrenched concept of the But It's as
1: if they withdraw their labor. I mean they all those doctors who have to give evidence in trials or magistrates and justices and so on, they are writing pamphlets against the system they have to operate and ultimately they undermine it in that way. I mean does yeah. does that does that describe it correctly? Do you think, Mike? I think, and because it, it oh. depended on this whole co-option of a very of of a group of you know well-informed, educated, authoritative individuals, and when they no longer identify with the task, it is not really feasible to 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 maintain it at that level.
2: Yes, I'd say exactly, and and, and it's this uh, important distinction. They can they can oppose, authorities can oppose certain individual outbreaks, manifestations of the conspiracy, simply saying, you know, yes, witchcraft exists, but not in this particular case. Or they can engage in this much more difficult and deep seated um, sort of objection where, where they they turn their back on the system they in, in sense created uh, and start to, to undermine it. And they have to work to undermine it, just as they had to work to create the conspiracy, to add their support to the conspiracy, to put their energy behind the conspiracy. Um, once once that stone gets rolling down the hill, uh, it takes a considerable amount of, of effort over a
3: period of time to slow it, let alone stop it. In the case of the Templars, it's probably the clearest example of one source of central power, state power, launching these accusations, King Philip IV of France and the men around him. Uh, and they attempt, as best they can, to control the entire narrative They have uh, written accusations that uh, lead to the arrest of all the Templars all over France with really impressive efficiency all on the same day, October 13th, Friday the 13th, October 13th and 1307. Uh, But it's interesting that in a really fundamental way, as powerful of the King of France as the King of France was... He actually fails ultimately to really control this narrative because uh, some other political actors outside France push back and the papacy push back pushes back. So in the end, the order of the temple was not found guilty or convicted. It was was simply suppressed by the pope in 1312, and it was suppressed using the logic that essentially there had been too many rumors, too many bad things said about the, the order. It could no longer really function. It just wasn't feasible going forward. And so, for the good of the church, it was just being suppressed, and that's interesting because what it leaves behind is as a residue of great uncertainty. There never was a clear resolution, and so it leaves it leaves the rumors in place. Like the literally, the church's statement was: "There's all these rumors, and we can't go forward." So the rumors are still left there. They're not confirmed. They're not denied, and it's a perfect setup for. These ideas to just sort of be floating out there, you know, for for several centuries, they're really not not active. Unlike with witch hunts, and unlike with blood libel trials, there are no Templars in the late medieval and early modern world. There's no one accused of being a Templar. <laughs> it's not the same scenario. But those kind of ideas linger out there, and then they can be picked up. Interestingly, and maybe not entirely coincidentally, more or less just as Europeans are deciding they're not going to live in a world filled with demons and, and witches. They decide that there there may be some truth to the to the whole rumors around the Templars and, and pick that back up as more more congenial perhaps to late eighteenth
0: and nineteenth century conspiratorial thinking. Hmm. I mean, we're we're gonna we're closing in here on the end of our time together. So, what what does happen, Mike? What happens to witches? Why, where'd they go? What?
3: Uh. So,
2: yeah. Um. The the trials actually end. First, uh, the first thing that happens is there's what is referred to as judicial skepticism among authorities. They just become very nervous about the mechanisms they've been using to get convictions. For example, let's, let's loop back to the case of Salem that we mentioned earlier. Uh, as Miri said, uh, many of the accusers there are these young children, and that creates great concern. People are not oblivious to the fact that children may be elaborating uh, certain things, may not entirely be telling the truth all the time. So that becomes a concern among other things uh, that contributes to the, the end of that trial. And then um, in the in the basically the enlightenment period, there's this much larger intellectual shift among the, among the intelligentsia of Europe that basically it amounts to that demons, uh, non-natural forces, supernatural forces of any kind, we will no longer accept that they are really active in the world. We're not saying that God and the devil don't exist. That would be atheism. Many Enlightenment thinkers are accused of atheism, but they, they don't, for the most part, don't want to go that far. But we're going to not allow that they're active in the world. So that eliminates the possibility of real harmful magic, of real witchcraft in the way that it's been conceived, that authorities themselves have been saying it happens for the last several hundred years. And what you see then is um, the belief still persists among ordinary people. People are still concerned about their neighbors doing things to them. But it's all these agencies of intellectual power um authorities themselves the court systems but the press gets in on it you know, newspaper stories start to talk about how um, accusations of witchcraft are now signs of you know, primitive backward rural culture it's what the silly people out in the sticks do no one with any sophistication thinks there are any witches in the world anymore um, educational systems you know, school public schooling begins to generate um in this time and and that takes a stand against it um, and uh, well, then there's a whole additional turn there uh, in in sort of the romantic period back to what ultimately gives us neo-pagan witchcraft and Wicca today. But that's maybe that's maybe a strand too far since we are closing <laughs> in on the end of our time.
0: OK, but so we, are, we were losing witches and then at the same time we have this explosion um, with anti-Semitic and with anti-Semitic uh, theories in general, conspiracy theories in general, and then this new and exciting interest in the Templars. What's going on there? Like, what, what, why, why, why now? Um, I should just say, yes,
1: that um, in the early modern and modern world, um, the fascination maybe with the traditional conspiracy against the Jews is maybe fades, but a very powerful new one develops. And that's the one of the conspiracy of sort of financial control of the world. People who are cosmopolitans who have no loyalty even as nation states start developing in the nineteenth century and define people's patriotism and their commitments, the Jews, just you know, the bankers, the 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 uh, uh, movers and shakers that create wars to their own. I mean, there's deep analyses by actually respectable writers, as it were, who are in school curricula, uh, who analyze um, the spread of capitalism through the agency of uh, named families of Jews, you know, and, uh, and that is very powerful. And that also creates um, in modern politics, a sort of conspiratorial anti-Jewish sentiment uh, that is actually inherent to the left rather than traditional nationalist, racist, as it were, uh, um, hate of Jews. So it gets extremely uh, complicated, extremely dense, a very dense field of uh, conspiracies But nonetheless, um, what we've seen in recent years, I think, is a re-energizing of it because of various phenomena that are both technological and political, so that um, we've never been so awash with the possibility of reading nothing but uh, appalling conspiracies to explain absolutely everything happening in the world, including, of course, uh, COVID-19, as we've again recently seen in the United States in particular, but not not solely there. So it goes together with anti-science. It goes together with disrespect for uh, scholarship and particularly humanities scholarship. And all we have to do, what we must do, and I suppose this program is contributing to, is we just have to fight back in every possible way, but also hope that the pendulum will swing and perhaps it is already swinging towards a more sort of rational delivering type of governance. Uh, and maybe that's really the point that Sean was making, that if people bought into the idea that everything is murky and manipulated, after a while, that is so, so disheartening. And particularly in the middle of a pandemic, when you have a president who actually is trying to deliver and is trying to be rational about it, led by science and so on, I think, and I very much hope that that will also lead to the general sort of turn away from conspiratorial thinking, as people will see, that in modest ways, this more rational and measured, maybe emotionally less satisfying, but practically much more beneficial I intervention the I agree with everything that, that Mary just the said forward. in terms
3: of what I hope will happen. And certainly we can you know, we can say that in, in slightly different ways, all three of these conspiracy theories are very much still alive and have been very much on open public display very recently, certainly in this country. I think for some of us, it was a little difficult to grasp Say back in 2016, that when certain adherents of conspiracy theories like QAnon were saying that Hillary Clinton is a witch, they didn't mean metaphorically she's an evil woman. They meant she's a witch. They meant she's involved in a vast satanic conspiracy to destroy society. And only when you really understand that they're serious do you understand why so many people who were not very impressed with Donald Trump were never, ever going to vote for Hillary Clinton uh, and why they became convinced that Donald Trump had some practically supernatural mission to save us from that, that satanic conspiracy. Uh, and certainly uh, we're all well aware that it's not difficult to see how anti-Semitism feeds into some of these same uh, conspiratorial ideas, uh, and even if you think about the Templars, m- mostly Templar conspiracies. Conspiracies over the last few centuries have been fairly harmless. There's no great harm in reading a Dan Brown novel that tries to work the Templars into some you know vast secret theory of how the truth has been head- hidden from people over the last you know two thousand years. Um, but of course, it's less harmless when you see people at white nationalist rallies and at the attack on the Capitol in January sixth waving Templar insignia or memes that have gone around showing Donald Trump uh, somehow not obese as he really is, but as a buff Donald Trump dressed as a Templar to defend, you know, good white Christians against their enemies, you know, that's that's not harmless at all. So we can certainly join Miriam in our hope that perhaps we're, we're turning the corner and that perhaps more people in our society will start to feel that rational government is serving their needs, that the world is not some bizarre, inexplicable um, attempt to deprive them of their their rights and their liberty. Uh, we can certainly hope so, and we can certainly do our best to push back on these things. Uh, but until that happens, we're we're still in this this digital world where it is uh, frighteningly easy to purvey these these kind of conspiracy theories and to be out on a world, often anonymous world, where you can push them with, with great fervor and find many other people who apparently are willing to, to join in on them.
0: Hmm. Are we? Is this an optimistic moment? I'm, I'm not certain. I mean, but I think I, I, see, I see a way that conspiracy theories and belief in the inexplicable uh uh, this inexplicable, the idea that the world is a very bad place, but it's not my fault could be reclaimed. right? And, and then if you, if we take part in self-governance, then, then, you know, if we, we do our part to, uh, to learn and to, to, and to fight this kind of ignorance, maybe like we can reclaim our world from these violent, tragic events.
2: I think one thing we can all say is that these conspiracy theories pessimistically, never seem to die entirely. They always seem to regenerate themselves somehow. But optimistically, they do rise and fall. They do decline. They surge at particular moments, but then they do always recede. And so we just have to hope that we are, at a, we are past the surge and we are on the point of decline, it applies to so many things.
3: I think well, just, it's useful too, not to be uh, entirely condescending to people who feel disengaged from the world around them. It's not entirely conspiratorial thinking to think that, in recent decades, the global economy has benefited a small number of people enormously and left others behind. That part of, of the analysis is not irrational. It's, it's irrational <laughs> then to, to construct a vast conspiracy that explains that, but to say that you know the forces of, of the rich and powerful have vested interest in in keeping power structures the way they are is is not entirely conspiratorial. So if we really want people to be able to feel that governments and economic structures uh, benefit them and are something they should have faith in, you know, we need to be honest about the way our our global economy is. is very unfair to to many people.
0: Yeah. Fair. All right. Well, perhaps that's where we close then. Um, Again, taking a a reasonable and honest approach uh, to the world around us. I cannot thank you enough for joining me for this uh, conversation so enlightening such a good time and uh, yeah let's we can we can do this again well maybe not this exact conversation but I'd love to chat with you again thanks so much